You are probably wondering whether the author of this copyright expired song got their start in music because they were fleeing a pogrom or because they were fleeing Jim Crow. That is the question you should be asking yourself by now if you listen to this podcast. Did they get into music because they were fleeing a pogrom or Jim Crow? So which was it this week? Pogrom or Jim Crow? Pogrom or Jim Crow? The answer is pogrom. Jack Yellen immigrated to the United States from Poland when he was five with his family like a total coward. The standard back then was to just get on a boat regardless of age. His writing partner for this song, Milton Ager, he actually was born in Chicago. Okay, so Milton Ager doesn't fit the template. He was born in Chicago, though Jewish, so he's probably one generation removed from fleeing a pogrom. Though they did both make their way to major cities. And that actually is a characteristic that I think literally every songwriter or movie star that I've talked about in this preamble has. All of them made their way to probably New York, possibly Chicago, if it's movies, L.A., and I want to talk about this briefly in the preamble. Hangout capital. The concept of hangout capital. Because I use the phrase hangout capital in the Q&A that I'm going to do in this podcast. What am I talking about? What is hangout capital? Well, it's a pretty simple concept. Your odds of making it in entertainment are a lot higher if you happen to be in a place where you're just hanging around somebody who might spot you and start paying you money. This is a phenomenon that's very palpable in these preambles about these various musicians. None of them started getting paid when they were living in Pumpkin Hump, Alabama. They all had to make their way to New York or Chicago, which was as big as New York back then, population-wise. They all have a story where they kind of got in the area and then they got spotted and eventually started getting paid. And that is still true today. That is basically the pattern And what it does is it gives an enormous advantage to anyone who can move to New York, move to L.A., and just kind of be around for a long time. Especially in your 20s, because these environments tend to be very, you know, young person dominant. I made the mistake of moving to New York when I was 31. And people would go, hey, come to our show. It starts at 1230 in outer Brooklyn. I'm like, fuck no. (laughs) I've got to get up at 7 tomorrow. There would also be, there would be shows where they're like, hey, show up at 5.30, put your name on the list. I'm like, I'm still at work at 5.30. The earliest I can get to Queens is 6.30. But that's just kind of how it's done, generally. You go to one of these big cities and you are just kind of around, hoping to get spotted. And by the way, people always conclude, oh, therefore I should move to either these days New York or L.A. As soon as possible, I always say, no, no, hold up. Don't do that immediately. Because the problem in both of those towns is that every fucking class clown in America, every drama kid, theater geek, anyone with any showbiz aspirations whatsoever. In L.A., it's often people who are actors who will then be like, oh, I'll also do comedy to make myself more well-rounded. They all move to New York and L.A., and therefore the ratio of comedians to spots is way out of whack. Supply badly outstrips demand. And the bottom line is, it becomes really hard to get stage time to practice. Whether you're doing stand-up, sketch, or improv, it's just really, really hard to get stage time. And you inevitably encounter situations because there's such an excess of supply where it's, it's a little exploitative. You get club owners, bookers, theater owners asking you for stuff that... If there weren't a million comics clawing each other's eyes out for spots, they might not have the balls to ask. They'd be like, hey, you want stage time? Come work the door at my club for a year. 
Hey, you want to be in an improv troupe? Drop $4,000 on classes before, and then after that we will consider you for maybe an improv troupe. And what's that worth anyway? Hey, you want to do three minutes of my club? Fantastic. Bring 40 friends to a 7 p.m. show where they all have to buy two drinks minimum, and P.S. the show will be dreadful because it's basically an open mic. These are the situations you commonly fall into in New York and L.A. And the bottom line is, it makes it very hard to get good because you can't get any practice. I would recommend this. Start in a medium-sized city for at least a year or two. I mean, honestly, I would say maybe three or four years would be better. It kind of depends on how old you are, how old you are when you start. But start in a medium-sized city for a little while. Because what you need is a city where it's big enough that there is a scene. It cannot be East Sister Fist, Iowa. It has to be a city, a city large enough to have a professional sports team, parentheses, that is not Jacksonville. That city will be big enough to have a scene, but it also won't have the glut of wannabes that New York and L.A. have, and that'll make it possible to get the practice you need to actually learn how to do the thing. Because I do feel that that should be a prerequisite for making it in comedy. It is definitely not, but it should be that you have to actually kind of know how to do the thing and have some aptitude. That would be nice. And the good news is that because today... Everything is so digital, we are so instantly interconnected. I mean, I write for a show that films in L.A., but I live in Washington, D.C. My wife works with a team that's located in Germany and Pakistan and stuff. Things are so digital that it should be possible to now find people who are sort of making a name for themselves in these medium-sized towns. That's the good news. The bad news is, in my opinion, the entertainment industry is a bit slow to figure this out. Unfortunately, in my opinion, there is still too much favoring of people who can just kind of be around and who can just kind of hang out, be an intern for a long time, or one of those jobs that is, you know, intern adjacent. That is still common, and I have to say, in my opinion, that is not a good way to do things because you are privileging people who just are able to do that. I mean, we are getting to the question of why aren't there more fill-in-the-blank group in comedy a big part of the answer is because being able to move to New York or L.A. or already being there, just, you know, growing up there, being able to be there and hang out and make peanuts for a decade while you're waiting for something to break, that still really matters. So bottom line, money and contacts matter, and money and contacts still correlate with other traits. All these singers and songwriters from 100 years ago, they had to go where the industry is, and that is still true today, though I would hope it will soon become less true. Hello, I'm Jeff Maurer, a man who hopped a hay cart north from Southern Virginia many years ago, and who now hosts this, the I Might Be Wrong podcast. It is a special two-for-one podcast today because I wrote a shortish article called Everything Slash Nothing is Illegal in International Relations. And then I also did a mailbag column, which was kind of fun. So, hey, it's a beautiful day for a podcast. Let's play two. The first one is called Everything Slash Nothing is Illegal. Illegal is in scare quotes in international relations. I wanted to write this one because this is a tick you see all the time. You see it all the time. And there are there are mostly two groups whom I frequently see referring to something in international relations and saying, that's illegal. It's usually social justice types. That would be group number one. And then group number two would be authoritarian dictators. 
your Putins, your Maduros, Fidel Castro back in the day. It was always, this is illegal. This thing is illegal. It's always kind of made me roll my eyes. This week it was used several times in reference to what Russia is doing in Ukraine by figures who are, they're not cranks, not clowns, the president and, not that the president couldn't be a clown, but this one is not. The president, Macron, the UN Secretary General, they used it in a context which was not utterly ridiculous, but I did think, okay, kind of time to get myself on the record here, why this always makes me roll my eyes a little bit. So it's called Everything Slash Nothing is Illegal in International Relations, subheading, we should probably stop using that word. Last week, as I mentioned, people including Joe Biden, Emmanuel Macron, and UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, God, as a white person, is always hard trying to figure out how much zhuzh to put on a Latin name. I really try to, yeah, too much zhuzh is definitely worse than too little. So I, sorry, I, awfully Anglo, but I'm going with Antonio Guterres. Trust me, you wouldn't like the alternative. They all condemned Russia's attempted annexation of parts of Ukraine as, their word, illegal. And on the one hand, yeah, absolutely, I'm with you. This aggression will not stand, man. Though, I would have been more comfortable if they had called Putin's land grab, for example, unacceptable or maybe unconscionable, or though I get that this isn't very statesmanlike, a deeply fucked move from a real shit-smeared asshole. Why couldn't they have said that? And the reason I feel this way is because the word illegal means next to nothing in international relations. This is a small thing, people using a word in a context that I find a bit silly, that does capture actually a very big thing, that there are few legally enforceable rules in the international sphere. Our system is anarchic, and I mean anarchic in the bad way, not in the inspired some of the best punk albums of the 70s way. But let's focus on the semantics here, partly because the challenge of global peace will continue for thousands of years after I die, and I want to do a podcast this week. So, focusing on the semantics, it is almost certainly true that what Putin is doing is illegal. Now, it is common, unfortunately, in media, including, you know, the credible media, relatively credible media, to find articles and other stories that throw the word illegal around like a drive-time DJ tossing beads from a Mardi Gras float without actually explaining which laws we're talking about that are being broken here. Despite that, there are actually words in ink on paper here. And I'm talking about, for example, United Nations Resolution 2625 passed by the General Assembly in 1970, which says, The territory of a state shall not be the object of acquisition by another state resulting from the threat or use of force, end quote. A bit more broadly, Article 2, Section 4 of the UN Charter reads, All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. End quote. Now, I feel that any reasonable person would conclude that Russia is violating those laws. But, as it happens, UN law is a lot like the Bible, which is to say it is vague, nobody alive actually knows what it says, and only complete nutjobs take it literally. Consider, the sentence 
that comes immediately before the sentence that I just read from Resolution 2625 reads, The territory of a state shall not be the object of military occupation resulting from the use of force in contravention of the provisions of the Charter. End quote. So, did we not occupy Iraq for a while? Remember that? We did. That happened. There was a Green Day song about it. I remember. Now, we could debate the legality of the Iraqi occupation. Please, let's not do that. I'm begging you. I do not want to do that. But we could debate it due to the wording that says, quote, in contravention of the provisions of the Charter, end quote. Which raises the question, what provisions are they talking about? The big one in this context is Chapter 6 of the UN Charter, which governs the use of force. The money shot clause there, those are my words, not Eleanor Roosevelt's. Money shot clause is Article 39, which reads, The Security Council shall determine the existence of any threat to the peace, breach of the peace, or act of aggression, and shall make recommendations or decide what measures shall be taken. End quote. So that is to say, countries are supposed to resolve disputes peacefully unless the Security Council authorizes force. That is where the real power in the United Nations lies. The Security Council. They determine what counts as aggression, what is self-defense, what is barbarous villainy, and what is good-natured hijinks. So when Resolution 2625 says, quote, in contravention of the provisions of the Charter, it means without the Security Council's permission. And of course, any motion can be vetoed by one of the Security Council's five permanent members, which are the United States, the UK, Russia, China, and France? Is that? Hang on here. Yeah, that's right. France. Holy shit. Must be some holdover from the Napoleonic days or something. Anyway, those five countries can veto anything before the Security Council. They make the big decisions about what functionally is legal and illegal when it comes to war and peace. And, obviously, having Vladimir Putin be the arbiter of just and unjust war is like having Harvey Weinstein be your workplace conduct compliance officer. And therefore, the UN Security Council is basically irrelevant to the war in Ukraine. As a practical matter, UN resolutions are ignored on a regular basis, and every country is in violation of international law all the goddamn time. So, to return to the Bible comparison, basically everything is forbidden, so much so that people don't really follow it or take it seriously. Ooh, dropping some hard truths. If we all took the Bible literally, we wouldn't wear polycotton blends, because that's in there. Did you know that? Leviticus 19.19. Basically, nobody takes the Bible literally. Anyway, war and peace is not the only area where international law is basically a red herring. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, another UN joint, is so hilariously unenforceable that to call it a list of nifty ideas probably gives it a bit too much gravitas. Even better defined areas like the Geneva Conventions, That's uh, there's a little there there with the Geneva Conventions. It's still, it has fuzzy borders and thin precedents. Good luck getting Putin to comply with the Geneva Conventions. As a general rule in international law, the more narrow the scope, the better defined the law. There are occasionally relevant regimes on things like, for example, whaling 
or prosecuting once-in-a-decade criminals. You're Charles Taylor's, you're Slobodan Milosevic-chai. There are some laws that sort of work in those areas. International law is basically a niche product, like tentacle porn or a cat-shaped teapot. And therefore, to say that's illegal in response to some international incident is a, it's a somewhat silly statement. Everything is illegal, and therefore nothing is illegal. Of course, people call stuff illegal all the time. It has been shrieked in response to actions far less egregious than the invasion of Ukraine. People use it a lot like they use the word literally, which is to say it's an emphasizer. It's something you toss in there to show that you mean business, even if it doesn't quite make sense in context. So to wrap up, Putin's bullshit annexation, it is, I would say, shitty, laughable, unethical. I would say it is bad. That's a good word. It's bad. And I get why some people are underwhelmed by those words. I understand the impulse to reach for something stronger. And it is clear that Putin is violating the letter of the law. Unfortunately, the arbiter of whether or not that's true is Vladimir Putin himself. That is the law, too. International law is a work in progress, which is another way of saying that, for the most part, it is a vague, unusable mess. Instead of calling things illegal, in the future we should probably call them very bad in my opinion, and then leave it at that. And now before we do the mailbag, here's a quick word from a sponsor. Unless you're listening to this straight from my Substack, because apparently they're not dropping the ads into the middle of the thing if you listen to it on the Substack, so that's an argument for going to my Substack. I might be wrong.substack.com. You will not have to hear ads like this. And whether you just heard a commercial or a brief blank space, it doesn't matter because now we're going to do the mailbag. This was my first mailbag column, and I got to say, I kind of liked it. Will probably not be the last mailbag column. I enjoyed this. I'm sorry I couldn't answer all your questions, though I assure you that I selected the questions according to a totally unfair and arbitrary process that would make you very angry if you had witnessed it. First question comes from... Well, you know what? Who gives a fuck who it comes from? It comes from somebody who reads this blog. And I don't have their actual name anyway. I have their substack handle. I would imagine that Muffcrusher69 is not this person's Christian name. But anyway, this anonymous prole asks, why do I insult my readers like that? I like my readers. The person asks, let's say you are given a straight-to-series order for a show that would entertain America while also trying to wake up America to the current state of things in our politics and culture. Describe that show. Oh my god, I know exactly what that show would be because I already developed a pitch for this show. The show is called Two Complete Morons. It is loosely based <laughs> on the YouTube show Breaking Points with Crystal and Cigar. Crystal and Cigar are not the only morons I would parody, but they are an outstanding starting point. So it's political comedy, news-based comedy, for better or worse, probably worse, that's what I do. And format-wise, it would be kind of Colbert Rapport-ish. The idea is it would feature two actors, one playing a right-wing moron, one playing a left-wing moron. It would be similar to the Colbert Rapport in that it's that the person is always in character thing. These two actors, they are always doing a bit. The format would parody YouTube news shows, which is how a lot of people get their news these days. YouTube news shows. So it's two idiots at a desk, basically. The main way it would be different from political comedy shows that you see today is that 
the jokes would be off of the idiotic takes more than the news itself. The traditional way to do it is that you show some idiot like Tommy Tuberville, whose, whose very name is a bit of a joke. So you show Senator Tommy Tuberville, a man whose name makes him sound like an anthropomorphic hot dog from a 1930s comic strip. Tommy Tuberville says something real dumb. You riff off the dumb thing he said, there's your show. This would be a little different in that the jokes would come more off of the dumb takes of any political stripe that you hear frequently on Twitter or other social media sources. And I do think it's time for a new way of doing this format, the old clip-joke-clip-joke format that Jon Stewart and his writing staff pioneered, which I loved, by the way, I loved, and I wrote it for many years. It's great. It's great. But it does require a consistent perspective to really hum. And you are leaving a lot of humor on the table if you're only making fun of one side. So I had the idea for this show a while ago. I developed a pitch. Words do not exist in English to describe how uninterested Hollywood was in this idea. Now, I am used to my TV pitches being received like a gift basket full of pubes, but this one took the indifference to a whole new level. I had exactly one meeting about this show, and the executive's perspective was, how can you parody both sides when one side is completely right? Huh. So, I would not expect to see that show on television anytime soon. Next question. Do you think that you have more in common ideologically with the woke left or a good faith conservative? By good faith, I mean that they come by their beliefs honestly, appreciate dialogue, and are passionate about the founding values like free speech, due process, etc. This is an easy one. I have more in common with a good faith conservative. Or honestly, a good faith anything. There are good faith leftists whose opinions I honestly do respect. The problem, in my opinion, the thing that I really butt heads with, the area where I really have trouble seeing eye to eye with a person, the problem is rigid ideology. There are people out there who decide, this is what I believe, and then they reverse engineer their justification for their beliefs. These people, they're not rare. I think they are probably a majority. Personally, I find that approach to politics pretty damn useless. It is like playing Pictionary and just yelling, BOAT! over and over again, no matter what your partner draws. And I think we should also never forget just how fucking boring it is to be ideologically pig-headed. I don't want to talk to blinkered and uncurious people, partly because I already know what they're going to say. I don't need to talk to you. If I'm talking to someone who actually is acting in good faith and truly is interested in finding solutions, there is a chance, I would say a good chance, that we are going to find common ground. Talking to those people is also a good reminder that, uh, you know, I should do that. I should approach politics with clear eyes and an open mind and not, for example, scroll Twitter seeking out opinions that I already agree with, even though I've been known to do that from time to time. Next question. How can America as a nation make comedy funny again? Great question. I ask myself this question all the time. And most of my answers do end up being some version of people should give me more money. Though I do feel that might be slightly self-serving. And before I answer this question, how can we make 
comedy funny again. Let me say that I am open to the possibility that things were always shit. After all, 90% of everything is crap, but we do forget the crap. We remember the kids in the hall, and we remember the Simpsons' fourth season, but we forget that they were contemporaneous with shows like the Chevy Chase show and Capital Critters. If you're not familiar with Capital Critters, and you are almost certainly not, I do recommend looking that up on YouTube. That was a show on primetime television. Money was invested and ultimately lost on ugh, an animated show about critters who live in the capital. Anyway, not making that up. There's always been crap out there. So when it comes to making comedy funny again, I just want to say before I start, I am not totally convinced that things today are actually less funny. Though if you force me to bet, I would say yes, they are actually less funny. But I don't know that. Either way, how could things be funnier? Well, I talked about this in the preamble. Better ways of finding funny people would be a real good start. There are still way too many barriers to entry in comedy. At the risk of repeating myself, the problem used to be piece-of-shit club owners who demanded free labor and or sexual favors in exchange for stage time. Now it tends to be an improv theater that will expect you to blow thousands of bucks on classes before they even give you a look. Wealthy and well-connected 20-somethings have a large amount of hangout capital, what I talked about in the preamble. And that still really matters. There's still a strong New York and L.A. bias, even though technology makes it possible to find funny people wherever they might be. Bottom line, there just aren't enough people out there beating the bushes to find new talent. In my opinion. So that's one thing, making things less funny. Another thing, the endless effort to engineer absolutely perfect race and gender balance does hurt too, I think. The assumption that comedy aptitude exists in perfect proportion with all demographic metrics, that is that is just not correct. Of course, most executives would rather watch 100 of their projects bite the dust hard than have Jezebel write one mean headline about them. So, as a result... They have decided to just hire people who are not the best people available. I am not totally sure why investors put up with this, but they do. That's a second problem. Third problem. It would help if we, in comedy, were less afraid of Twitter mobs. I gotta say, the notes process at a network TV show, which I knew would be bad, it's pretty, it's pretty nuts. There are entire divisions of people... <laughs> who sit around it's their job to sit around trying to imagine how how on earth someone might be offended by something and i gotta say these people they don't just fear the woke okay it is still very easy to get crosswise with red state america now i don't know how different this is from the past i don't know if the u.s now has more fuss pots per capita than it used to or if maybe today the fusspots are very empowered because of cable news and social media. Or maybe if misaligned priorities are causing executives to cover their asses when they should just ignore the pearl-clutching crowd. But I do know that fear is bad for comedy, and there is a lot of fear right now. Last but not least, the fourth thing I'll identify, making comedy less funny. There seems to be a trend away from jokes right now. I think that's because succession... Hacks, Atlanta, these are the shows winning the awards these days. And in my opinion, those shows work as dramas, some more than others, but they're not really funny. 
are they? I'm not like laughing out loud at those shows. They are humorous sometimes. This seems to be the trend. Now, I don't know why entertainment trends happen. I mean, God, why was there a brief but brutal zoot suit riot in the late 90s? I have no fucking idea. This is the trend right now. I don't know why, but at the moment, jokes are passe and amusing situations are all the rage. And personally, I cannot wait for the winds to change again. Next question. Do you still have family in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia? If so, what is the best place to go after Thanksgiving dinner? Would it be Headlights, JB's, or Purple Rain? Asking for a friend. For those of you not familiar with the cultural offerings of Hampton Roads, those are three strip clubs. Now, (laughs) surprisingly, Google has informed me that all three of those clubs now have locations in Chesapeake, my hometown. So my God, Chesapeake has really come into its own since I left. I think it is fair to say that we now have a Hooters district. And yes, by the way, my mom is still down there. And of course, she swings by headlights all the time. Why wouldn't she? Best corn dogs in Tidewater. She goes by headlights on a daily basis, but though she does go to the original Newport News location. She considers the Chesapeake location to be a nouveau riche bastardization of the original. Next question. Why doesn't FEMA have a non-militarized army? Shouldn't we have a professional force wearing snappy uniforms administering to the needs of disaster survivors? Sure, they should work with local officials that know the area and the people, but when the locals are incompetent or dead, there ought to be people with expertise that can step in at a moment's notice. I'm going to focus on the uniforms part of this question because I strongly favor FEMA-specific uniforms. And that is because back in my early days at EPA, which also happened to be the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, EPA officials kept getting mistaken for FEMA officials. And FEMA officials were not popular during that time, you may recall. But people would just see the jacket with the letters and they're, you know, both have an E and an A and they would think we were you. For some reason, the federal government gives that jacket, that blue jacket with the yellow letters to every single agency out there. This despite the fact that federal agencies are unique snowflakes who must be allowed to live our truth without compromise in order to flourish. So yeah, uniforms. We need uniforms. The military gets it. The Air Force has those coveralls that make you look like a badass house painter. The Navy has that jaunty Pillsbury Doughboy-inspired look. The Army has that combat-adjacent camo that you can just, like, wear around so you can step into an elevator and make people go, like, whoa, shit. (laughs) Whoa, shit, this person looks like they came from the front. They're probably just picking up lunch. The military gets it. They get to have the jazzy uniforms, and the civil service deserves the same opportunity, which raises the question, what would a FEMA uniform look like? Okay, some brainstorming here. It needs to be visible. I am thinking road cone orange. It has to be something that you can see through a blizzard or a monsoon. It has to be action ready, you know, because you're on the ground a lot. No no loose fabric, something practical. Although it should also have an air of authority. I think the King's Guard outside of Buckingham Palace might serve as inspiration. 
So bright orange, skin tight, big fuzzy hat. Unfortunately, when I put those parameters together, what I end up with is the exact uniform of DJ Lance from Yo Gabba Gabba. And if you are not familiar with DJ Lance, you uncultured barbarian, I will include a picture of him with this episode. So I guess that's my recommendation. FEMA officials should dress like DJ Lance from Yo Gabba Gabba, glasses optional. You are welcome for the input. Last question. States are laboratories for democracy in the same way that Wuhan was a laboratory for biology. Hmm, well put. Should we eliminate them and become the unified citizens of America, still working on that name? Or should we all just become our own states? If it's the latter, can I be both of my own senators or could I elect you? Oh, I'm flattered as my other senator. Interesting question. I suspect this might be slightly jokey, but <laughs> there are people who are not joking when they talk about splicing and dicing states. And uh, I'll say about that, I find all these questions of what the states should look like somewhat amusing. You hear people talk about this all the time. They want to fuse the Dakotas or they're going to split California into six different states. I don't see any of that happening. People are awfully attached to the states they live in right now, and I think that basically ends the discussion, does it not? I think these are the 50 states, like it or lump it. Now, that being said, the way our states are drawn is objectively insane. You just have to look at a map to think that. In the early days, you look at the east, clearly the ethic was, okay, from that rock over there to the big tree on the hill there, that's Rhode Island. And then before too long, it's, okay, that France-looking thing, that's Texas. Texas is bigger than France. Very anti-France podcast. It's not the intention today. I apologize. But yeah, obviously the sizes and populations of our states are all over the place. A problem that is exacerbated by the way we do the Senate. A rational redrawing of our states would obviously involve similarly sized states, I would say by population, clustered according to geography and cultural ties. But that is the type of hyper-rational reimagining that only exists in wet dreams of technocrats and never, ever, ever in real life. So, I think we are stuck with the states that we have. Regarding the question of which senator you should vote for and whether you should vote for yourself, I would encourage you to please vote for whichever senator will result in me being allowed to vote for a senator. Because I live in Washington, D.C., the non-state whose characteristics, if we were a state, would be no less stupid than any other state. And I don't get to vote for anybody. And that is the mailbag, and that is the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I like that mailbag thing. That's going to come back. As always, please go to my Substack, imightbewrong.substack.com, and subscribe. It remains completely free, and I guess if you get the podcast that way and not through, like, Spotify or whatever, I think you're missing that middle ad. So there you go. Not to suggest that my sponsors aren't <laughs> offering terrific products and that the ad should be seen as more of an opportunity than an imposition, but I think that middle ad gets clipped out. And please rate me on Apple Podcasts. Please share the articles and episodes with your friends. I will be back next week with another one of these things. Until then, thank you very much for listening, and bye for now.